Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Jacqueline McCarowich. She is a board-certified plastic surgeon based right here in Toronto. How are you doing today, Jacqueline? Good, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your crazy, busy schedule. I know you being a new mom and, and starting to get back to work and stuff, and I know we've been trying to make this happen for a while, so I'm really happy to finally be able to connect and have you here today and share your story and your journey with us. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. It'll be good to have an adult conversation. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's a little shift for you, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump right in. So Jacqueline, as I mentioned, you're a board certified plastic surgeon with dual certification by both the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the American Board of Plastic Surgery. What does dual certification mean credential wise? Well, it just means that I've completed the appropriate surgical training and all of my qualifying examinations to be a board certified plastic surgeon in both Canada and the States. So it means that I'm board certified, but it doesn't necessarily mean I can practice anywhere in the US or Canada. So you're certified by a country means, you know, you have all the appropriate knowledge and training to be a qualified plastic surgeon, but you're licensed by a specific province or state. So okay. for me, yeah, I'm licensed in Ontario. That's where I practice. Ah, uh, okay. So what happened? Let's just say you wanted to venture into the States for six months or something and practice there. How would you, would you have to become certified in that particular state you decide to move into? No, I don't think it's that difficult. You know, you just have to uh, basically apply to that state's licensing board and okay. show that you have all these credentials and uh, what your purpose is for work. And each state's a little bit different, but right. yeah. Okay. Now, how long have you been a practicing plastic surgeon? Since 2016. And what inspired you to become a plastic surgeon? I mean, why plastic surgery as opposed to say an orthopedic or a brain surgeon or something like that? Yeah, it's a funny story. Like it's it's evolved over many years. So I guess I go back to the beginning. So most <laughs> of my life, I wanted to be an architect. That's what I really wow. thought I do for sure. That's yeah, quite that. the difference. <laughs> it, it's funny. It is, but it isn't. There are actually right. so many parallels between plastic surgery and architecture that I just didn't see until now. But okay. yeah, growing up, I had this like nerdy drafting table. And <laughs> And my dad and I used to build these model homes and stuff. And then in high school, I ended up doing this careers questionnaire. It's like one of those things they force everyone to do. And it specifically spit out this answer of, you know, you should consider a career in plastic surgery. (laughs) And I just never even thought about medicine before. So I put some thought into it. I had some conversations with people and I basically switched my whole career plan and applied to science programs. And yeah, but it's funny, like looking back now as a plastic surgeon, 
there are so many parallels between architecture and plastic surgery. Like plastic surgery is very much a design specialty, you know, like no two operations that we do are alike. And it's very, it's just as visual as it is technical. So, you know, to solve problems, you have to consider both form and function, which is very much like building a house and your reconstructions need to respect you know, certain structural parameters to just be viable and also need to consider aesthetics to create a beautiful result. So it's really is like building, it's like creating. And, you know, we use a measuring tape all the time, which I don't know what other surgical specialty could say that. So yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I feel at peace. Like my earliest, you know, architectural interests are satisfied still in what I, what I ended up doing, which is strange. very interesting. And the fact that the questionnaire spit out specifically plastic surgery i know That's crazy right? and so early but yeah i mean i did <laughs> i tried other things and it's funny that you say orthopedics and in, in, in neurosurgery because those are two other things that i looked into but yeah i ended up right back where the careers course spit me out so who wow. knows? did you seriously <laughs> contemplate both of those or either of those i did well i mean i think a lot of uh, something a lot of people don't know about plastics is you know we do a lot of bony work so plastic surgeons, the primary surgeons of the hand. So, you know, if you get a broken bone, you're going to end up seeing a plastic surgeon to fix it. So there's a lot of orthopedic principles in plastic surgery. So I naturally thought about that and yeah, brain surgery, actually, that was a huge interest when I was studying medicine, you know, learning about the way the brain kind of categorizes information. It's very interesting, but I didn't find that it translated as much to surgery. I didn't find the anatomy as interesting. So I pursued it and decided, decided otherwise. Very interesting. Now, do you have any family members that work in the medical world that maybe had a hand in inspiring or directing you into in that direction? Or was it solely just that questionnaire that kind of just popped it out? Yeah, actually, like, no, not really. My whole family is mostly engineers. Well, (laughs) uh, yeah, I once the, you know, course popped out this medicine answer. And I started thinking about it. I have an uncle who's a family physician. And so I, he and I definitely had some long conversations and heart to hearts and he was a huge mentor and he just seemed like he seemed happy in his career. So I found that really encouraging. So from that perspective, yeah, he was a big mentor. Okay. What would you say is one of the most exciting or inspiring things about your career as a plastic surgeon? Oh, that's so different year to year. I mean, right now I think I think for the past couple of years, it's really been the realization that it doesn't have to be stagnant, you know, and that you can keep growing, even though you've kind of quote unquote made it, or you've gotten to where you wanted to go. Like, it's funny. I think when you're a kid, you know, you have this like life milestone of, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a surgeon. And then you just, you never think of it from the other side of that growth trajectory. Like what happens when you get there, right? I'm a surgeon now. Does that mean I'm grown? Like, am I done growing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Have I reached my plateau or my ceiling? Yeah. And I I actually remember like I had this feeling of panic in the first few months of my job where like I have this great job for once my life is balanced. You know, I'm getting enough sleep. I'm getting enough exercise and it's great. But it was just this weird feeling of like, is this it now? Like, do I just keep doing this until I retire? You know what I mean? And so and like six years later, it's just been the exact opposite of that. Like every six months, there's some change that surprises me in my career and it's taken turns that I just never predicted for myself. But yeah, I feel like if you want to keep growing, you can. And so for me right now, that's the most exciting part, but probably in 10 years, my answer would be totally different. Awesome. Now in your field of work, plastic surgery, I read that the ratio of male versus female surgeons is five to one. That's pretty staggering statistic and difference. What are your thoughts when you hear that stat? Yeah, I don't have two minds, I guess. 
I'm actually surprised it's not higher. Really? Yeah. You know, like I feel very fortunate to have trained as a plastic surgeon at the time that I did. We did this, we did this look back on our Instagram page into the history of women in surgery and like just doing that research, I learned so much about how different it was for female surgeons, even 20 years ago to, to make it, you know, like the earliest female surgeons used to have to disguise themselves as men. And like these women lived as what? men the whole life. Yes. That's like a real thing just to be able to pursue their career interests. And so it's been, uh, it's been very challenging for women in medicine. And I didn't really have any female surgical mentors in my residency training. You know, all my teachers were men. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, surgery is still a largely male dominant area of medicine, but again, I don't feel ostracized as a female. I don't, I don't feel like I encountered a lot of resistance, you know, pursuing plastic surgery at the time that I did. So I think we're probably one of the first surgical specialties to have more and more women find success, which is, which is awesome. How about women in the field of teaching plastic surgery, your educators, your teachers, your mentors, in your experience, how was that ratio? Was there many women teaching? Yeah, very few. And I think, again, that's just reflective of like how much things have changed over the past 30 years, you know, right, right now, medical school is 50-50. But 30 years ago, it was very, very different, you know, maybe 10 or percent or less of people in medical school were women, never mind in surgery. So, you know, I, I had no female teachers until I, I hit a fellowship. And I think that's quite similar through a lot of surgical specialties. So now you mentioned women having to disguise themselves as men to pursue the careers as plastic surgeons. But how about in the medical field? Because I mean, there's, there's a little bit of a difference there because you're specializing in, in a specific type of surgery. Do you know through your experience or through education or, or speaking with others, was that similar struggles for women in the medical field in general? Well, I mean, that was sort of a reference to historically. So that's like looking yeah. back to, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 1800s. And, and so from that perspective, yeah, I mean, just at every stage, you know, even when women were led into medical school, they couldn't get a residency. So they'd be fully licensed as an MD and not be able to get a training position later. So it just continues in all areas of medicine, but it's changing and it has changed and we've come a long way. And, you know, I mean, now, like I said, medical schools are about 50, 50 men and women and different specialties are sort of changing at different rates though. I think surgery is intimidating for a lot of reasons. You know, there's this misperception that women cannot accommodate their lifestyles, which in theory are different than men to a surgical lifestyle. And, and part of that comes from, I think, just not seeing other females, not having other female mentors. And so that, that misconception drives like the fear of pursuing surgery as a field. So, you know, it's changing slowly as more and more women make their way into surgery and find ways to make that balance work. But yeah, it's, it's a slow change. What now you mentioned the lifestyle as a plastic surgeon. What is the lifestyle then? Like, what are your days like? What's like, I'm assuming they're long because you're when you're in surgery, they're long days. But what is a typical day like? What is the lifestyle of a plastic surgeon? That's an awesome question. And I think it's such a smart question too, for anybody who's considering that as a career, like just what is the day to day, you know, forget what you think, you know, when you see a plastic surgeon or what you do or whatever's, you know, posted on a website, like what's the day to day. So, I mean, my week is made up of the combination of operating clinics. 
So clinics are where I meet people and then see them after surgery. And then my operations are, some are in the main OR, which is where we put people to sleep and do bigger operations. And then sometimes I have space in the minor surgery suite where we're mostly doing short procedures on people who are awake under local freezing. You have to make time for administrative work, like paperwork that's definitely a part of medicine and then um, you're you're on call so what on call means is you basically cover emergencies for your area so you know for me I'm on call one day out of every seven days and that means through the evening and night any emergencies within my field I would cover so if someone came in you know fingers that are injured in a grinder or some facial injury you know I would go and see them in the emergency department and take care of them wow okay That's pretty intense. So would you say percentage wise or ratio wise surgery, your actual, where you're actually in surgery, doing surgery versus administrative and, and pre-surgery consults and things like that. What, what will be the percentage? Oh, well, I would say, uh, it's about 50, 50. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, would you say that there is a gender bias then in your field of work? Or has that changed as well over the over the years? I would say yes and no. Okay. I mean, like I said before, I think plastic surgery is a surgical field that's made a lot of progress in terms of gender equity. Like I think at this point, men and women are valued equally in terms of, you know, trying to get a residency position, right. a job. I feel like amongst my surgical colleagues, women are valued. There's still some bias from patients, interestingly, though. Really? Yeah. Like, I don't know if the rest of society has necessarily grown accustomed to the idea of their surgeon being a female, especially a young female. And that's something that, you know, a lot of my colleagues would, would echo that, that thought as young females, sometimes um, there's an element of surprise that we're the surgeon. (laughs) That's wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy that that still exists. But I mean, I guess that goes into my next question where, I mean, I come from a corporate background and, and of course there's still that 1940s or 30s old boys club mentality that still exists today, which is mind boggling to me in the corporate world where women still aren't getting paid equally for the work they do compared to their male counterparts, or there's not enough women in C-suite level positions in these big corporations. I mean, are, are you, I, I think we're starting to see a bit of a shift in the mindset And I think that a lot more women like yourself are taking matters into their own hands where they're pursuing the careers they want to do, no matter what people say. And women are starting more businesses on their own because they're tired of waiting around for promotions or what have you from these big corporations. Did you have any adversity to deal with in your experience through maybe through school into your your working career now as a plastic surgeon and being a woman in that world was there any adversity that you had to face yeah it's tough like thinking about it you know other than really not having any surgical mentors I look back and I feel like I was very fortunate I don't know whether it was just luck but I had male mentors who were very supportive so like my residency program for example I feel like they made active efforts to empower women in surgery and I, you know, going through, I've had two maternity leaves in the past, you know, year and a half. And I received, you know, a surprising amount of support from my male colleagues through the whole process. So I don't know. I mean, the statistics are true. You know, women do still get paid less uh, in every profession. I think that certainly applies to medicine. There are less women in leadership roles. There are less women in teaching roles. And 
that's starting to change and that still affects us. But my experience has been largely positive. I'm, I'm very happy to say, you know, and I feel like men should know that, you know, they have a huge opportunity to lift women up. Like, yeah, you are a perfect example of that, Brad, the fact that you're doing exactly what you're doing. And so I don't know, I've been very fortunate to have had supportive male mentors, even though I didn't have any female ones uh, throughout my career. That's, that's amazing to hear though. That's really, really encouraging and, and great to hear that the shift is starting to happen. So what are your thoughts personally on this shift in mindset and the landscape and how, how do you think women can continue to push through and continue to break down these barriers and, and change and shift those ways of thinking? Yeah, that's a hard question because, you know, there's so much that you don't have control of. So I think you just start with yourself. Like, I mean, not just women, but anyone facing a challenging situation, like just trying, I think, to find that inner voice and express it outwardly, you know, like drowning at the zillions of external pressures and messages about how we should be or what we should care about and what we can do or can't do and just finding, you know, your authentic self and not being ashamed of it. Like it's hard when you look at something you want to do and you don't see anyone you recognize, you know, you're trying to pursue something and you just don't feel like you see anyone like yourself. And we had this mantra in medical school that I always come back to. And that is that it takes all kinds to serve all kinds. Right. And I feel like when we were talking about that, I didn't even completely know what it meant, but over the years, it's just like the meaning of that has deepened so much for me because it's just this idea that everybody has something different to offer. You know, there's like no best set of qualities that makes you a a best physician because people that you're serving are all different as well. So, you know, again, it takes all kinds to serve all kinds. And I think that really speaks to women. You know, if you're looking to pursue a specific career and the people in that field don't resemble you at all, you know, like, I just feel like don't be afraid to be different. You know, your differences mean that you are needed in that field more than you know, you know? Yeah. Well, the differences are what makes you stand out, which again, can help you excel. Totally. Yeah. In your experience then, what are the percentages of plastic surgery patients, meaning men versus women that come in? It depends on which side of my, so my practice is sort of split. I do a lot of aesthetic surgery. So that's cosmetic surgery. And then my focus at the hospital is hand surgery. So in the cosmetic surgery realm, a high majority of my patients are women. A lot of this relates to just changes that the female body goes through during pregnancy, which right. I've experienced in an all too real way in the past <laughs> few years. <laughs> yeah. And my hand surgery practice, there's both, but a high percentage of them are, are male. Okay. Yeah. Now, when you were in school, did you have to, or did you have the option to pick a specialty? Cause as you said, your, your specialty is hand surgery. So when you're going through school, do you have to pick and branch off into a specific area that you want to focus on for, for plastic surgery? You don't have to. So when you train as a plastic surgeon, you spend five years doing every element of plastic surgery. Okay. So that's burn surgery, craniofacial surgery, uh, microsurgery, lower limb reconstruction, congenital anomalies. Like plastic surgery is this huge hodgepodge that's sort of brought together by this idea of, you know, molding and shaping and solving complex problems. So you do learn all of those aspects of plastic surgery. And some people will just go right out into practice and other people will do an extra year of specialized training. So I did a year in hand and peripheral nerve surgery. That's not really all that I do. I even at the hospital, I'm a general plastic surgeon, but that's just my extra area of specialization when it comes to reconstructive surgery. Okay. So how does cosmetic surgery play into that through your schooling then? 
uh, well, you learn all about cosmetic surgery okay. in your residency program. So, you know, I would graduate fully trained as a cosmetic surgeon as well. And then it's just, it's sort of one of those things where you just can't do everything. So right. you, you end up in your career focusing on certain elements of plastic surgery that you, that you like the best. So for me, those are cosmetic surgery and, and hand surgery. Any, okay, can I ask any particular reason you decided to focus on those two? Like, yes, you like those areas, but what drew you to, to those areas, those particular areas? Yeah, that's a sort of sequential story too. Well, I fell in love with hand surgery because I love the anatomy. When you're just learning to operate, it's, I truly think the most beautiful place to be in the body. Just everything is so discreet and the structures are beautiful and you have to be really, you know, there's a lot of finesse involved in repairing delicate structures that move. So I loved that. And it was functional. Like you can immediately see afterwards that something that broken, as broken as working again. But I found that it didn't satisfy the the original reasons why I went into plastic surgery, you know, there's, there isn't that visual component. There isn't that artistic component and that creative component that you get from cosmetic surgery. So I started gravitating towards that as well. And now I feel like I have this perfect balance where I can, you know, enjoy the artistic component of, of, of plastics and also the, the very delicate reconstructive component. Beautiful. Have there ever been, I know you briefly mentioned this, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about this in particular. Have there been female clients that come into the clinic for a procedure that have a preference of male versus female surgeon or female versus male? And if so, how is that dealt with? It happens very occasionally. Like I would say it's it's not a huge problem that we, we face. I mean, in my, in my clinic where we work, we have both male and female surgeons. Right. It's really a situation of cultural preference or sometimes, you know, a surgery in a sensitive area of the body, like the vulva, for example, a patient will prefer a female surgeon. I've definitely observed situations, like I said, in my training where it's, it's, there's more obvious patient confidence in the male trainee than the female trainee, for example, but no one really outright asks for the male surgeon. So uh, it's just sort of sometimes a there are some biases that become obvious uh, some patients, but uh, as a majority, it's not really a, a big issue. Okay. What is one of, or the most challenging procedure you've completed to date? Yeah, that's a tough one. There were a lot that are memorable. I mean, I guess one of the most impressive things that we've done that was challenging was uh, I was involved in a hand replant or a couple of them in my fellowship training. So like someone chops off their whole yeah. arm. And then you're involved in trying to repair all the structures. So everything, skin, nerves, vessels, muscles, bone, it's a very long procedure, generally happens at an inconvenient time of day. So you're doing it through the night. But yeah, that's probably the most interesting one I would have to share. How long does the procedure take? Depends on the injury. Roughly, ballpark? For a whole hand, maybe eight hours, I would say. Wow. That's intense. Yeah, it depends. And how many surgeons would be working on that at any given time? It depends how lucky you are. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in a training program, you're kind of rich with with intelligent humans. You know, you have your staff surgeon and then your fellow surgeon and then your resident surgeon. So right. you've got a lot of smart brains. And if you're in certain centers, you know, you can collaborate with other fields. Like one of the arm replants we did, we had orthopedics involved with the shoulder component and vascular involved with the big vessel component. So sometimes there's other specialties involved as well. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about the ethical side of your work in terms of the, your thoughts and feelings around the changing, changing the physical appearance of women through cosmetic surgery, especially 
you being a, fe- a female cosmetic surgeon. What are your thoughts on, on this and, and changing physical appearance? Because I'm sure women come in and they want certain procedures done where you're changing their appearance to a certain degree. What are your thoughts on that as a female, just as a woman, but also on the professional side of that as a woman surgeon? That's a good question. And like, I would love to hear more about your thoughts about this as well. Like I love talking to people and seeing, you know, how they feel about the whole idea of, of plastic surgery in general, but it's funny, you know, like people, it's almost like people try to pit plastic surgery and body positivity against each other or like sort of see them on different sides of a war, for example. And like, I just feel, I feel like at least in my philosophy, they're very much intertwined. You know, I feel when I'm doing my work, like the goal is the same, you know, we're trying to achieve harmony and a positive relationship between the body and the mind. And so I don't know, this is my personal philosophy on plastic surgery. I just feel, I feel like women should feel empowered to find that balance without any kind of shame or judgment in whatever way is right and true for them. So like, if you kind of think, for example, there's sort of two philosophical ways to find that harmony, you know, between your mind and your body. Like, so maybe you're a woman, maybe just had a baby and you have some extra tummy skin, you know, maybe one woman looks at her new body and, you know, she sees it as the most beautiful part of her because that wrinkly tummy grew a baby and it represents the ability that, you know, she has to bear children. And maybe another woman looks at her excess skin as, you know, the only thing stopping her from fitting back into her favorite pair of dress pants and diving back into her career with confidence. And she isn't attached to that extra skin and wasn't a part of her before her pregnancy. And she wants to get rid of it to feel great in her clothing. You know, I think I look at those two women and I feel like both of those feelings are human. Yeah. Both of these feelings are positive and proactive and both of them want to make a change. And one woman's focusing on her mind and the other's focusing on her body. So it's just sort of like, I think they are not so separate from each other. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's black and white. I don't think it's that easy. And I'm not saying that you're saying it's easy, but my personal opinion, I don't think it's so black and white. It depends on the situation, I guess, for me personally, my thoughts on it, I guess, I mean, because I'm sure that a lot of your clients that come in for cosmetic surgery, they're in need of that confidence boost. Um, and if that's going to help them get there, I don't know. There's part of me that thinks that you shouldn't really alter what you're given. You should be happy with what you're given and what you're born with and how you're born. And then there's the other part of me that's like, well, you know what though, if it's going to boost someone's self-esteem and self-confidence by changing a bit of their appearance, then so be it. If if that's going to help them live a better or more fulfilled life, then I don't see anything wrong with it. But I think there's a lot of gray areas there. Like the two examples you used, I think that that's sure. Why not? I, I would totally be okay. I'm okay with that. I think that's, that's good. If that's helping them feel better and helping them fit into those pants or whatever their reason being, helping their mind, whatever it is, then sure. I don't know. I, it's a very difficult area. I don't know. And I'm just, I'm more curious about your thoughts as a woman and as a surgeon. So are you of two different opinions as a woman and as a female and as a woman surgeon? Like, do you struggle with that at all internally? You know, it's a good question. And I think, you know, even your first philosophy is not wrong. You know, this idea that women should learn to love their bodies and, you know, learn to love what nature has given them. And that's not wrong. It's, it's totally, I agree with that completely. And I think I did, you know, have a point in my career, which, you know, the cosmetic aspect of plastic surgery is very physical focused. And you think, you know, you're like, what, 
if I have a daughter one day, like what, what is going to be the influence yeah. on that child of, you know, what I do every day. But you kind of, I kind of made peace with that patient to patient because as a surgeon, every time you meet someone, you do has to sort of ask that deeper question. Even if the person's not telling you, you have to ask it, like, what is the reason why this person wants to make this change? Yeah. And, you know, does it feel like a positive thing or a negative thing? I do have patients that come in and say, you know, I feel like taking this little bit of skin off is going to make me fit better into my jeans. And to me, that's like a very specific goal that's achievable. That's going to make that person happy. It's proactive. And I feel good about doing that. And I have another patient who comes in and says, you know, I just, I'm not finding great relationships and I don't know why. And I think, you know, if I just looked better, I might be able to find happiness there. Or, you know, I really want to look like this photo and it's just some completely photoshopped, like unachievable goal. Like those are patients where you really have to stop yourself and say, this is not a person I should be operating on because their goals are unrealistic or doing this for the wrong reason. They're not in, in emotionally the right place to commit to a surgery. They you know, a cosmetic surgery may have the the effect of improving confidence, but you shouldn't pursue cosmetic surgery to give you confidence or right. to restore confidence. That has to come from within and no amount of cosmetic surgery is going to birth confidence that, that right. does not exist before, you know? So you really have to be careful and, and try to weed out patients that are looking for surgery to solve some kind of emotional problem. But I think, I don't know, if you take that philosophy back to just body positivity and that idea you were talking about, about trying to love what nature has given you, you know, you can, like, here's another example. So say you have like two women and they've both been naturally curvy and they've maybe struggled with their weight or their body image. And right. You know, one woman decides like, I'm going to love my curves and I'm just a curvy girl and I'm happy with who I am. That sounds like a very positive, you know, way to go. And then there's another girl who says, you know, I want to live a healthier lifestyle. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to change my body and I'm going to feel good about that too. None of those involve surgery, but they're two different approaches, both of which I think are positive and, you know, proactive. They're both body positive, right? Like one is learning to love where her body naturally sits and the other one's working towards something that's that's healthy and they're different. You know, there's no shame, I think, in wanting to make a physical change. I don't think wanting to make a change in your body that that's going to make you happy or more comfortable is, is, uh, is such a bad thing. I would agree. Do you have to have the, like, how often do you have to have those tough conversations or do you get into that type of stuff? Cause I'm sure you do pre-surgery consults. So to find out why they're doing it, but do you have those tough conversations with these clients that come in? Well, it's more a conversation that I have with myself. I think you meet enough people, you start getting some instincts. And sometimes just people directly will say things to you that are a red flag that suggests that they might not be pursuing surgery for, you know, the right reasons. And it's not that I directly talk to those people uh, and try to sort out their life for them. But it's more a conversation of saying, you know, like, I think you should think about this more, you know, maybe we should meet again. I do reinforce ideas like, you know, when people mention their boyfriend's preferences, things like that, I right. really do reinforce the idea that you got to do this for you and you should be only thinking about what's important to you. And if this is not something that's important to you, then it's not something, you know, you should do. Yeah. So from that perspective, when people make comments about, you know, doing things to their body because someone else wants them to, I, I definitely intervene and say, you know, this has to be something that's that's for you. Okay. That leads me to ask another one then. So how does that fare? Because when it all, when it all comes down to, this is a business you're running your business, you are a surgeon. This is how you make your living. So 
how does that fare for you when you're telling people, you know what, maybe this isn't the right idea for you. So essentially what you're doing is for lack of a better way of putting it, you're turning clients away. So which means in turn, you're also hindering your income. So how does that fare for you in that regard with the personal side of things and the business side of things? Yes, you're so right. It's such a small <laughs> question, but you know what? Bad business doesn't fare well. So if you're going to operate on someone who in the end is not going to be happy, it's not going to help your business. You want to, I think, have a relationship with patients where they have a realistic expectation and they're going into surgery for healthy mental reasons because that's a person you know that you can make happy. Right. And on a personal level, I want to operate on people whose lives I'm going to be enhancing. Like that's my goal in yeah. cosmetic surgery. I don't want to have a relationship with somebody who, you know, is not going to be happy from surgery because they're doing it for the wrong reasons or they just aren't there, there mentally or they haven't gone through those processes to be ready to make that kind of commitment. So on a personal level, level ethically, I, I couldn't do it. But even from a business level, you, you, uh, you want to form the right relationships, I think, rather than just quantity. That's, and that's why it's a tough struggle, though, for you internally. Uh, it, it's surprisingly not. I mean, I don't know whether I'm just fortunate to be a part of a clinic that can afford to turn away, you know, patients that are not the right candidates for surgery. Yeah. I think, I think, from that perspective too, you you want to choose a surgeon who doesn't need your business, so to speak, right. so that you're going to get an honest opinion about whether what you're thinking of pursuing is safe, reasonable and is going to have the outcome that you're imagining in your mind. Does that happen often though, that you do turn clients away or patients away? Every week. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that a personal thing? Like, so obviously you work in a clinic, there's, there's multiple surgeons working there. So is that like, is there guidelines as a clinic, as opposed to an individual surgeon that, you know, okay, if, if this person is, is displaying these kinds of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for traits or they're giving you these kinds of answers, then we turn them away kind of thing. Is it, or is it just a personal opinion or personal preference that Jacqueline, a client comes in to see you and, and you're just not getting that vibe from that particular patient. You have the authority to turn them away. It's something that every plastic surgeon is trained to identify. It's a part of our training. Like elements of body dysmorphia, for example, are things that we are trained to recognize. So I like to think that most surgeons would would be going through that sort of care process as they meet each person. In our clinic, I mean, we have a lot, there are a lot of different meetings that happen before a patient would actually make a commitment to surgery. So there are other reasons why someone you know, might not be deemed a candidate. And a lot of it is just health related, you know, cosmetic surgery is, is most meant to enhance your life. And so you want to offer that to people who are going to have minimal risk of anything going wrong. So people with, you know, uncontrolled general medical conditions and things like that, we, we try to not operate on so as to not take that kind of risk. Very interesting. So being a plastic and cosmetic surgeon and being a woman, Can you speak a bit about what self-love and body positivity, body acceptance and women's empowerment mean to you on a personal level? Yeah. I don't know. I think there's sort of two different things, self-love and body positivity. Mm Self-love is a big thing, but I mean, in terms of body positivity, again, to me, I think it's just that idea about finding harmony and sort of self-acceptance between, between the body and the mind. And so, you know, that is done on a personal level, person to person. So whether you personally 
achieve that by accepting what nature has given you, accepting mm-hmm. your curves or by trying to make a change that, that makes you feel, you know, happy and empowered. I think both of those are, are body positivity. So I think for me, I would just summarize it by, you know, in your own personal way, and without any, you know, fear, finding a way to find harmony between your mind and your body and find that happiness. And self-love is an ongoing process. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> self sure. Self-reflection, which is kind of funny. Like even doing things like this with you, Brad, like just sitting down and talking and thinking yeah. about life, like how often do we do this? But that's an opportunity for self-love, right? To just yeah. appreciate how far you've come, where you're going, you know. Absolutely. Self-reflection. Yeah, I think we do not enough of that yes. kind of self-love and self-reflection, but but it feels good. So yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, speaking of empowerment, what does that word mean to you? Oh, that's a big question. Empowerment. I mean, I think to me, it probably means knowing your authentic self, getting to a place where you know your authentic self, and then having the confidence to make that a realized entity. So you know, through your voice through your actions, through pursuit of your goals, just being able to be your authentic self and, and feeling like you can do that. I love it. Since the massive explosion of social media platforms and all the people using them in the world today, in your opinion, how has that impacted your profession? Like, has there been an increase in the amount of patients contacting the clinic and wanting to book procedures or has it not really changed as a result of, of social media and these bullshit beauty standards that are created by the media (laughs) and all of that other shit that goes along with it. It has really challenged my practice, our practice as plastic surgeons, I would say over the past 10 years, because the it's just, people are just being kind of continuously exposed now to altered images, which we, whether we have a choice or not, we're seeing them, right? Which I over time, it just creates a distorted perception of reality for people. We're spending so much more time online. Everything is edited. And so as a plastic surgeon, I just have a lot of patients come in with these wish pictures of highly Photoshopped images, hoping to achieve some change that's just really not possible with surgery or with any kind of thing in reality. So yeah, it's really just trying to um, educate people about about what's real and what's realistic is is a challenge. But yeah, the Zoom boom is real. I mean, there have been studies to show that that uh, just the more time that people are using the technology and and uh, Zoom as opposed to in person meetings, we're we're seeing ourselves and cameras distort things. And yeah. uh, you know, I think that has led to some increase in interest. Have you ever had pushback from clients when they, let's say they come in, a client comes in with or a patient comes in with a an image and you clearly know it's photoshopped they don't have you ever had pushback it was like no i don't care what you're saying this is what i want to look like and that's it yeah how to deal with that definitely and i mean all all you can do is sort of reassure somebody that like you want to make them happy as much as they want to achieve their goal right and if you don't truly believe that you can do that if you don't think it's possible at least in my hands as a surgeon I'll tell them then you know I don't want to take your money if I can't make you happy and you know you try to give that person education to say you know this is an image that looks like it's been manipulated nobody knows for sure but if they're not willing to accept that or they're not ready to hear that you know all you can really say is that you know you don't think in your hands you can you can produce what they're looking for it's not a good fit. So I'm sorry, but we can't achieve the results you're looking for. Therefore, we can't do your surgery kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. That's got to make you feel good, though, in a way, because you have 
tried to educate them. Now I'm sure they'll probably just end up going somewhere else, but internally and ethically for you as a surgeon, that's got to feel pretty good that, you know what, listen, I, I just can't do it. You, you did the right thing kind of thing. You know what I mean? And just turn them away and said, no, sorry, this is, this is unattainable. Yeah. I mean, I, ethically, I don't even feel like I have another choice. It's not even that I feel like good. Like I did the right thing. It's just in my mind, there's no other option. You know, yeah. who, there's, there is no other option. It's just, I can't argue that it's, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I could never operate on somebody who's looking for something that just isn't possible. Have you had to turn away quite a few patients with these unrealistic, unattainable looks that they want? Well, I mean, there are some patients that we have to turn away, but I I think a lot of it can just be solved through education. Like sometimes it's just knowing that that person is at the beginning of their journey in terms of like learning. So they may want to achieve a certain look and they're trying to articulate what they see in their mind's eye with various photos. And you kind of go back and forth and say, well, you know, this photo is has been altered. That's really not possible. This photo is a little more realistic. Let me show you some patients who have achieved something that maybe is what you're looking for. And then they'll say, yes, I think I would be happy with that. Or no, that's not really what I was picturing. And it's just sort of a gradual education process. So that's why, uh, you know, I really love, it took me a while to get into using social media as an education platform, but now that I see the benefits of it, we use it a lot in our clinic. And I think one of the benefits is it just allows people to absorb information in really small bits, which the brain learns well that way, as opposed to just coming to a consult and talking to someone for an hour, and then you leave and you forget everything. And so patients can digest that information gradually, and they can see other patients physically going through changes, or they can see another patient and say, that person has a body that's similar to mine. Like, what what do they look like? And it's, there's like a gradual learning process there. So some people just need time to understand what's possible and what's not, and whether that would still help them achieve their goals or not. That's got to feel good for you though, when you're able to educate a client and, and make them realize that, listen, what you're, what you're asking for here is just not physically possible. It's unattainable. So that's got to feel good when you're able, able to educate a patient and make them see the light or show them the light that, no, you know what, let's, let's go this route. And, and they agree with you and that whole education process. Yeah, I like the education process. I like trying to explain things with analogies, but I think what makes me feel good truly is just forming that connection where I can make somebody happy. And yeah. I see a person where, you know, their goal is realistic and I know it's going to mean a lot to them. And, you know, I've been on the other end of surgery where somebody's just so ecstatic with how they feel and their result. Like that truly gives me joy in my work. So, you know, education is a part of that process of just making sure that, you know, you do have a relationship where you have a mutual understanding of what, what you're trying to achieve. And if you achieve that, that person's going to be happy that makes me happy. That makes me excited when I feel like we have the same vision and I know yeah. that I'm capable of doing that for that person. If I can give them that, that makes me happy. Yeah. That's gotta be an incredible feeling. What drives or motivates and inspires you to keep going, to keep pushing and excelling at all that you do? <laughs> that's a big question. I don't know. It's kind of like back to that thing where, you know, you, uh, when you're a kid, you like think, oh, you know, when I'm a plastic surgeon, then I'm there. And I guess it's funny. It's, it's a cool stage being where I am now, where I'm really just doing what I'm doing, like for the adventure, you know, truly. Yeah. Like I, I'm now at a point where I think I'm pushing myself because I want to, I'm not doing it because I feel like I have to, or I got to get to that stage where I finished all my exams or I'm, 
got a job, you know, I'm, I'm there now and I'm finally in this place where I can choose my own adventure and design my career and my hours and my balance the way I want to. So um, it's a really good feeling now. Yeah. Like I'm just motivating myself for my own means as opposed to because somebody else needs me to. Right. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? I'd say try to speak to plastic surgeons and like just grill them, like ask them the hard questions, you know, ask them, what do you think is the worst part about your job? What gives you the most joy on a day-to-day basis? Because the answers might be different than what you're expecting, you know, ask people doing the job you want to do exactly what you were saying, you know, what does your average week look like? Yeah. Do you have any regrets about your career? I, like I said, like people might hear plastic surgeon and it sounds and looks very glamorous, but like, it's a grind to get here for sure. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I have no disillusions about that. Yeah. And you like, you give up a lot of your best years in your twenties, you know, to yeah. your, your training and uh, medicine in general is a demanding profession. You know, people always ask me, would you encourage your kids to go into medicine? And I say, you know, like, I don't know. I, I don't think I would encourage them to, but it right. <laughs> If it was right for them and they truly loved it, I would say go for it and I would support them, but I would never push them into it because medicine is one of those things that will, like, if it will provide you with 24 hours a day of work if yeah. you don't have your boundaries. If you let it, it will eat your whole life. So you just, I love my job, but it's, it's not for everyone. So I would say, you know, talk to a plastic surgeon and just ask them those questions. I, I think it's very interesting that you said that, that you don't know that you would encourage them because I just think back to, growing up as a kid and hearing parents talk, Oh, I want you, I want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. These are the jobs that you need to have. These are the jobs that are stable. And, and here you are saying, I don't know if I'd encourage my kids to go into the field of medicine. I think that's a very interesting dichotomy. That's, that's, I guess you think back and that, Oh, these were, these jobs were all the rave and what you needed to do. And now here you are, we're in 2021. You're saying, I don't know if I'd want my kids to go into that field of work. Yeah. I mean, uh, medicine's a lot of hours. So if you don't like it, it's a lot of hours doing something you don't like, you know? Yeah. And, you know, at this point, I think everyone's met someone who doesn't like their job. And it's oh, just, yes. it's so, so important to find that thing that, that excites you and like yeah. that fuels you. And I think, I do think some people go into medicine, they realize partway through that it doesn't do that. And people make career shifts and, you know, I realized that life is a lot less static than I, again, I pictured it when I was a kid, you know, people are always making changes and finding something is or isn't right for them at at whatever phase. So I feel like I'm going to try my best to uh, (laughs) to follow my kids interests and uh, like, let them flesh them out, like let them pursue them and see, see what it becomes. Like, it's interesting. You look at people who are successful, who are in very unique careers, you know, like famous singers or artists or whatever and like their stories are often the same they're like well you know I just did this 10 hours a day since I was a kid and like I was somehow allowed to be in this environment where I could pursue my passion in an unlimited way and I just I don't know who knows whether my kid will be really desires to be the next like who knows what and you know if they spend so many hours a day pursuing that for their whole childhood and, and adult life they could be amazing at it. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. What is one common myth about your profession that you'd like to debunk? <laughs> that all we do is create, you know, breast implants and things like that. 
I mean, I do that. It's a wonderful part of my career, but it's funny. That's always seems to be the first question people ask if I'm like riding in a taxi or talking to a friend. But uh, yeah, no, plastic surgery is just so much more, more. than breast implants. It is. It's so much more than that. <laughs> no, I mean, there, there are a lot of different elements of plastic surgery. You know, like I said before, we treat burn injuries. Yeah general anomalies, we treat facial fractures, um, you know, we're microsurgeons, we're actually one of the only, probably the only surgical specialty that operates on literally every part of the body, because we're a reconstructive specialty, we're that specialty that other surgical specialties call in, when when there's a hole, when there's like a problem that needs to be solved in a creative way. So it's, uh, yeah. Fascinating. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? (laughs) Probably probably being naive. I don't know, maybe naive positivity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's unfortunately true. I like, I don't know. I, um, I have trouble seeing anything in like a negative light or like a task as being kind of an impossible one, but I don't know. It's not a, it's not a necessarily a good trait. Like every trait has balconies and basements. So I don't know that quality gets me into trouble also. Balconies and basements. I love that (laughs) analogy. That's awesome. Speaking of success, how do you define success? What does that word mean to you? Ooh, it depends on if that's applied to like, I guess applied in a career sense. Well, I mean, I definitely don't think it's becoming a doctor or a lawyer necessarily. It's just, guess, <laughs> yeah. I've in life. Like, what about just, kids, just you know, life in general? Finding something, you know, that is contributory, you know, that's productive and contributory that also gives you stability and joy and you know a sense of purpose and I think finding a feeling of inner peace you know if you like what you do you'll feel a sense of joy and and peace and so you got to find something that really connects with you know what you love but stability is important too you know yeah but there's so many people have a problem finding something that they love to do so many people end up staying stuck in jobs they fucking hate and can't stand and are miserable and wishing away five days out of the week, like living for the weekend. I I think it's terribly sad that more people don't find what lights them up or what inspires them. It's true. I mean, not everyone gets a careers course in grade nine that spits out. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I hope that people just keep fighting to find that, you know, like lots of people change their careers a lot yeah. of different times and it's tough. Like, I think this is total tangent actually, but I feel like our education system is funny, right? Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't really encourage people to try and fail and try and fail. It doesn't teach people to take risks. It sort of teaches people like, you know, the best outcome is for you to get a hundred percent. And if you get yeah. that, and that's like almost as good. So it's just, it's kind of encouraging perfection and like performance, which, which doesn't give people a flexible way of thinking. And so people, I mean, at least I felt when I was applying for permanency, like for a university, there's like this permanency feeling, like I got to figure out who I am and what I'm going to do. And then once I pick it, then I'm there. And, you know, I think reality is life is a lot more fluid like that. And you can change and you can continue to explore. And I, I wish that was taught more in school because I feel like people would get, they would find that thing. Faster. Yeah. Yeah. Just by letting people try things and fail at things. That's right. I don't think that thinking outside the box is encouraged or taught. And I don't know if you can teach that necessarily, but at least encourage that behavior to think outside the box and that life doesn't have to flow like this regimented step. You go to school, then you graduate high school, you go to university, then you get a job, then you, you buy a house, then you have a family and it life doesn't have to be like that. But 
it's it's I mean, from when we were kids, and I'm assuming we're around the same age, close anyways, that that's the steps we were supposed to take. You're supposed to go to university and do this and do that. And that is success. And that's the way life is supposed to be. And you're right. The education system needs to change in the way that, that they teach the kids and teach them more valuable life skills that they'll use, not this bullshit that they teach that you have no use for when you get out of school. Yes, totally. Like life skills just being like, you know, trying and failing. Yes. Boring. And it's funny, like there's just this, you know, inherent idea that kids have that, you know, if you go to university that somehow you've done better than people who don't. And I just, I personally think for a lot of people, based on what their interests are, their skills are, university is a total waste of time. It doesn't get you to where you want to go any faster unless you know a degree is required for the job that you're trying to go into but if you're if you have a different type of skill or a trade or you know you want to start a business like maybe those four years that and money that you dump into university isn't really going to get you where you want to go more so than just experience and and trying and putting yourself out there and so yeah I think there's like a lot of different career trajectories for different people and school is really only structured to benefit some of them. I'm I'm surprised to hear you say that. I'm I'm of the same mind though that I think university is a waste unless like you're going through for a specific end goal like yourself, a plastic surgeon or a lawyer where you have no choice, you have to go that route. But otherwise I think it's a waste of money. Why are we told that we have to go that route that university is the only way you're going to get a good paint? I think that's complete bullshit. It's the same reason we're told that we need to be doctors and lawyers, Brad. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the the way of thinking and the education system needs to change for sure. Yeah. What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Wow, it's hard to find that during the pandemic, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these days, I feel like for me, it's music. I feel like I've like rediscovered that again. I don't know. Music is always a big part of my life, but I'm I'm like in a band with my husband. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I'm the singer. My husband's the lead guitarist and like a bunch of And we have like one show every year and that's on Halloween. And we rent out a bar and we... (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. And that's the only time we play, but it's like such a creative outlet. And I don't know, I've just been trying to like find time for that again, but I don't know, feel inspired. I mean, I feel like for me, it's like anything that allows me to kind of take a step back and step outside myself and then step back in with fresh eyes. Like, I don't know, I feel like I get my best ideas when I'm doing things that are just completely unrelated to work, you know, like love that (laughs) zoning out and just getting lost in some other activity that. I feel like it's so important to just allow your brain to wander. And it's just kind of like, at least for me, I find it's in these like kind of wanderlust, unconstrained states of mind that I think I get ideas or that inspiration is born. Like you got to step outside your, your activities. You got to step outside your routine and and let your brain wander. (laughs) That's incredible. You're in a, I love that. I think that's amazing. That's inspiring right there to go from, a plastic surgeon and you, you have a band, you're in a band with your husband. I think that's amazing. It's fun. I married the right guy. Hey, I don't know. (laughs) What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after learning it? Hmm. That's a lot of things come to mind actually, but I don't know. I'd say maybe there are very few benefits. I feel like I used to, I feel like I used to definitely be like a people pleaser and I still am. It's hard to escape, but there are very few benefits to that. You know, it kind of removes you from your own authenticity. 
Like, I feel like I was a perfectionist growing up, spent a lot of time trying to be perfect. And then you just kind of realize like there really is no such thing. And you're just trying to measure up to other people's reflections of what perfection is. And so in doing that, it just pearls you farther away from your authentic self to kind of focus on what other people want. And I feel like I remember when that stopped, like, I just remember I hit this breaking point, like in residency where I just finally like hit my limit. And I found myself in this place where I just felt like I was not enough. Like I wasn't enough for anything. I just felt like I was failing. (laughs) Everything in life wanted more from me than I could give. And I just didn't have anything more, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally to satisfy anyone. And I feel like I remember this moment where I just kind of said like, screw it. Like this is me and my best. You know, if it's not enough for you, then I'm sorry you feel that way. And so I, I just remember like hitting this point where I was like, I just, I think this is, I'm just me and this is what I am. And, you know, I'm sorry if that's not enough for you. And I was just forced to find personal satisfaction through self-acceptance, I guess, rather than through the approval of others, because I just couldn't get it at that point. And I feel like it just changed the way that I approach life now. And I, yeah, I I can't say that I'm not still a people pleaser, but I, I, a lot more kind of function for my own purpose. A lot of people get stuck in that people pleasing. And I I like that you mentioned the fact that you were a perfectionist when you were younger. I mean, looking forward now to your career, perfection almost has to be part of it because what you do is so precise and so perfect. I mean, you have to be precise in what you're doing. So I I think that's interesting to look at it that way. You were a perfectionist as a kid or as when you were younger and now you've just kind of accepted things for what they are, but there's also that perfection element to your career, to what you do. Yeah. I mean, I think I've honed that, you know, there's like a joy in having a career that does require that element of perfection. You know, you can kind of like relish in the, the feed that, feed that perfection is need. <laughs> yeah. The funny part though, is like going back to this whole idea of like school, not teaching you to take risks. And like, yeah. like I used to get that as a criticism on report cards. I remember my mom saying this to me, you know, I get on my report cards, like, you know, not a risk taker. And that just was totally intertwined with this idea of, of perfectionism. And I don't know where it came from. I don't think my parents expected that from me, but it was just something <laughs> that, was that I struggled with that. I think more so than anything else held me back. So interesting and very interesting. What would you say is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Uh, yeah, I always have the same answer to this question because not that I've ever been asked in an interview before, but I feel like I talk about this. One of my best friends once said to me, you know, everything worthwhile. And she was talking about friendships, but I think yeah. it applies to everything. She said everything worthwhile requires, you know, regular time, energy, and love. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about friendships, but... I think that applies to everything. You know, there's just, I realized the hard way, like there's just no shortcuts in life. And I used to think I could accomplish more in an average day, you know, than person B. And, you know, it's almost like this idea of like squeezing five things into a box. I can only fit four and I'm doing it. I'm winning, but you kind of like only realize in retrospect, looking back that you were making sacrifices along the way too, you know, and some of my relationships did suffer from that behavior. So I don't know. I feel like I just kind of learned from her that people aren't a box that you can kind of check off on your to-do list or, you know, they're not like a degree that once you've earned it, you have it, you know, relationships are this living, breathing thing that needs regular time and love and they grow and change. And I've just, I think, learned to dedicate that regular time to people. And I'm so glad I learned that before having kids, you know, I think it's, it's an easy mistake to make. I love that. 
piece of advice and you're right it is applicable and adaptable to everything in life it's so important that everything receives that relationships yes i i agree with her 100 that it does relationships take work no matter what kind it is friendship marriage boyfriend girlfriend whatever the case may be they require attention and love and all of that to grow because these things need to be nurtured in order to grow yeah and it's it's the little things too right like it's not it's not having that big birthday party and going out for that amazing dinner or going out on that huge trip. It's like, it's the time and space in between when you're just doing little things. Like I feel yeah. like if you see somebody every week, it's just the little comforts or like you get to see people in different States, you know, actually music is a huge, a huge example of that. You know, like the people that the friends that I'm in a band with, yeah, our friendship is so much richer because when you have that music relationship, you see them when they're stressed and you see them when they're disappointed in themselves and you see them when they're late and they're rushing or you see them when they're embarrassed because they're, you know, music is like a very vulnerable, exposing yeah. thing. And you just see different sides of people from having those different experiences with them. So yeah, it's just like time and gradual experiences that are sometimes a lot more subtle than the big things. For sure. Life is what happens when you're busy making plans. <laughs> yeah, that's a summary, right? Yes. <laughs> Very true. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So now the next cool. group of questions just be one, two, three word answers, okay? Okay, it's like a pop quiz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How would you describe yourself in one word? One word. Oh, great. <laughs> Money or <fame? laughs> that was a weird. I would say it's great. Oh, that's okay. Hey. My husband and I always get into funny discussions because he's like so black and white and yeah. I very gray and so because of that we think differently which i'm great yeah, like strength to both of those there's weaknesses to both of those too but yeah <laughs> money or fame money <laughs> money i see as like a something to reduce stress yeah time so looking for time and stress reduction i would say money okay early bird or night owl oh god definitely night owl which is totally not <laughs> related to my profession but like i mean i see creatives as night owls and what you do (laughs) is creative to a certain degree and your your music as well i see creative usually creatives are night owls so that makes sense yeah mornings are a struggle (laughs) what's the first thing you notice about a person probably just their energy is that a lame answer no that's that's (laughs) fine no aside from necessities what's one thing you could absolutely not go without music 100%. What's your favorite stress reducing activity? This is also going to sound super dorky, but I think it's like getting a whole bunch of little tasks done. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, I get stress relief from, you know, music and other hobbies and spending time with friends. But if I'm really stressed out, the thing that will make me feel the best is just looking at my to-do list and getting a whole bunch of stuff done. (laughs) (laughs) Those little jobs that you can just do them and cross them off. And then you're like, Oh yes, it is. It is definitely fulfilling being able to cross things off a list for sure. Yeah. For me personally, I wouldn't say it's stress reducing, but it is (laughs) fulfilling for sure. If you could teach the world one thing, what would that be? Oh, geez. I don't know. Maybe it's a function of being great, but I have this complex of thinking that like, you know, I think, no matter how much you understand something, there's always going to be somebody who understands it better than you that you have to learn from. So I don't know whether there is anything at this stage that I feel like the world would benefit from. I feel like I'm too young and inexperienced. I'm more thinking about what I have to learn. Yeah, that's tricky. I don't know. <laughs> All right. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? More hours in the day. If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? Hmm. I wish people were more 
I wish people felt comfortable enough to be more transparent. I think people see a lot more than they let on about yeah. other people. And, yeah. you know, I think we're more alike than we are different. Yeah. I think that's just that same thread of authenticity. I think it takes people a long time to find, find that place. So For sure. I would agree. I wish we'd allow each other to get there sooner. Yeah. What is the best version of you? If you close your eyes and imagine. Well, I can imagine some superficial things. <laughs> I don't know. That's tough. You know what? To be completely honest, I, this might sound strange, but I, I think I've always kind of felt like I am the best version of myself. I don't know whether that is a weird thing to say. Like, I know that there's a lot of ways that I can improve and grow and learn, but I feel like it comes from just how I was brought up. Like, I think my parents have always just instilled in me this voice that like, you know, you can do it and you can accomplish what you want and you are enough. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I feel okay the way that I am. And yeah, I feel thankful for that. Actually, that perspective. Beautiful. Our rapid fire section is done, by the way. I forgot to say that. Probably not very rapid answers. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most recent investment you've made in yourself? <laughs> that is, this is absolutely nothing. Well, let's uh, remind ourselves that I've had two kids in the past 18 months. So, yeah. but actually that's been nice. You know, like that's been a huge change in my life. Like just this idea that now my life priority largely has shifted to these like little people that I'm absolutely obsessed with. Like you yeah. realize how much you were just focused on yourself, your whole yeah. life. So, so I think, yeah, that's been the biggest thing. It's just been not the speed of life that. slowing it down that. And just, you know, even pursuing a career, like selfish is the wrong word, but it's not, you know, yeah. doing these things like you are investing in yourself. So I, I think it's just looking back in my whole life, I've been investing in myself and now it's like so nice to, to focus on something else. Beautiful. What's your personal motto? Personal motto. Hmm. I like to find humor in things. I mean, I think, I guess I would say everything's funny if you look at it from a certain angle. Yeah. Actually, philosophically, that's very important to me now that I get into it. Like, I think no matter how terrible a situation is, it's kind of funny if you stare at it for longer enough, right? Like, you've got to look at life that way. Like, that was a huge thing. That was a huge philosophy I had in choosing a life partner. You know, I just knew, like, I need somebody who can laugh at themselves and at life and you know like that's what the small stuff and so yeah i think that's how i try to proceed okay what's one of your biggest failures or for let's use a different word life lessons or teachable moments and what did you learn from that Mm. i think it's probably still along the same thread of what we were talking about but i guess i just go into it further like i i would say that i failed to maintain my friendships in residency when i was going through my residency training like life was just hard and there were a lot of demands. And again, I just had this idea of, you know, I can do more in 24 hours and I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to fit all these things in. And I just, I think I just didn't notice that, you know, there's a sacrifice and people grow and change a lot over, you know, a decade. And if you miss it, you miss it. And it's hard to make up for that lost time. And yeah, I mean, what I gained in my career success, I feel like I lost in relationships and it took a lot of time and effort to rebuild that. And it's, yeah. Like it's still an ongoing effort. And um, so I don't know. Now I, I, I really make it a priority now. I, I think I've learned that. And now that I'm in a position to, you know, control my own work hours and life balance, I just, I try to actively make space, like create yeah. space and time. Sacrifices you had to make getting to where you are today, right? Unfortunately, other things had to suffer. But like you said, now you can take advantage and get 
I mean, not that you can get the time back, but you can at least put more effort forth now than you could previously. Yeah. I think it's a conscious effort that you have to make to carve out that time. Yeah, for sure. If you could set up a billboard anywhere, where would you put it and what would it say? A billboard? Oh my goodness. (laughs) That makes me feel embarrassed. I'm just picturing like my face doing something awkward or I don't know, (laughs) billboard. Probably say like, keep your eyes on the road. (laughs) Focus on your driving. Don't look at this billboard. (laughs) That's like a total other rant. I just hate distracted driving. I'm actually don't like driving in general. It's such a life hazard, but yeah, that's what my billboard would say. say, (laughs) If you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? Oh, I don't know, Brad. I feel like we've gone a lot of places today that again, I was just uh, thinking it's like, it's nice to have these opportunities to reflect and talk about some cool ideas. So that's been fun. Okay. I can't think of anything that you didn't ask me. All right. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Uh, definitely to take more risks. Like even just little things, you know, I would say to myself, you know, don't be afraid of putting up your hand to ask a question. I feel like I went through like 12 years of school and probably never put up my hand, you know, and it's just that fear of, maybe being wrong, but I would tell myself, you know, don't be afraid to be wrong. There really is no such thing as wrong. And, you know, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and embarrass yourself. Don't be afraid of failure. If you want to try something new, you know, now I feel like I know like repeated failure is the fastest way to success. Yeah. uh, You know, when you're younger, you just don't know that. So I think that's for sure. I can relate to, I, I never put my hand up in class either when I was going through school, I just too embarrassed or worried about, asking a stupid question or giving the wrong answer or yeah, I can totally relate. Yeah. Lastly, Jacqueline, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Oh, that's the hardest question yet. This is like, (laughs) if I'm dying, I'm on my deathbed. No, just just words of wisdom you want to impart to future generations, to the world. Oh, Oh man. I would just say, enjoy the adventure. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Yep. Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking the time and making the time to be here today and share your journey. This has been such an incredible conversation. It's like you said, it, we went many places and it's been incredibly educational. I've learned a hell of a lot. Um, and I thank you for that. It's, it's been inspiring and interesting and thought provoking for sure on, on my end. I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you being a member and part of the empowerography community by sharing your a bit about your story and your journey. Well, I feel honored to be included. So thanks for even inviting me. And now I've, I wish I could interview you and ask you all the things that you've, uh, <laughs> that you've learned. Like this is such a cool career that you have. I'm, I feel inspired to go listen to all of the other podcasts. Awesome. Well, honestly, the honor and the pleasure is all mine because without women like yourself, this platform doesn't even exist. So again, thank you so very much for taking the time out and being here and sharing your story today. No, thank you. Thank you, Brad. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Jacqueline Makarowicz. She is a board certified plastic surgeon. Thanks so much, Jacqueline. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. You too. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. 
You can find me at visuphoria.ca. Follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.